Hello and welcome to Energy Voice Out Loud, where we are leading the global energy conversation. I'm Ed Reed, Africa and LNG editor, and joining me are Hamish Penman, digital journalist, and Damon Evans, Asia editor. Damon has, has, has got a new microphone this week, so I'm sure his, his dulcet tones will be even sweeter as he's talking us through the uh, latest uh, hopes and aspirations for the Japanese offshore wind sector. Yeah, the microphone seems to be working pretty well. The the old one, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it. Maybe I'll send it back and say that that it broke in the post and protected the switch or something. You shouldn't have said that on the podcast. <laughs> no, I know. I'm not really going to do it. I'm just, I'm going to try and repair it. Maybe some uh, sort of art installation. Yes. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, I'll do that. Um, Japan wind. Yeah, it's... Um, so yeah, last week I was in Tokyo at a conference, um, my first ever pure offshore wind con- uh, wind conference, I should say. So um, uh, a milestone for this um, unapologetic fossil fuel fan, but uh, really enjoyed it. <laughs> Very exciting. There were a lot of major wind developers from Europe in attendance, BP, RWE Renewables, Equinor, Orsted, Shell, Total Energies, um, you know, all the big hitters all very excited about the potential Japan has. Uh, Japan is um, one of the biggest electricity markets in in Asia Pacific, if not the biggest. It's one of the biggest energy consumers in the world, primary energy, I think, number four. And, um, and it imports a lot of fossil fuels. Nearly most of its energy is imported. It doesn't have much domestic resource. But apparently there is a great potential for for wind, uh, the Global Wind Energy Council uh, estimates there is 128 gigawatts of fixed bottom offshore wind potential and 424 gigawatts of floating offshore wind potential. So so floating offshore wind is nearly or about triple the, the fixed bottom potential. Um, not a lot of development today. Uh, they had a first offshore auction round, um, I think it was last year. And um, that was dominated by Mitsubishi. Um, so it's still very much early days, um, but all the companies are positioning themselves and are hopeful. Uh, but the, the, the general consensus was they want to see more speed and a coherent plan from the government and big decisions being taken faster. Um, it seems that the offshore wind sector in Japan is about where the UK was around 2010, 2011, um, I'm told by by delegates at the conference, and there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the UK experience and how the UK kind of uh, created one of the, I suppose, arguably one of the most developed and best offshore wind sectors in the UK. Um, you guys probably know more about that than me. Um, there was a lot of talk that the government needs to be um, have more clarity around its targets. Uh, for offshore wind, it has a 10 gigawatt target by 2030 and uh, 30 to 45 gigawatts by 2040. Um, developers would like to see more clarity around the frameworks, regulations, pricing, etc., to, to kind of encourage investment and the buildup of a supply chain. Um, Japan doesn't really have a history of oil and gas, so it doesn't have any indigenous offshore sector, which presents a lot of opportunities for, say, Scottish companies or other uh, experienced um, players with offshore experience. Uh, I met a, I met a couple of Scottish companies, wind developers, uh, Flotation Energy, 
SSE Renewables, which uh, launched a joint venture company last year called SSE Pacifico with a local Japanese renewable energy company. They're getting their foot in the door and um, laying the groundwork for what they see as a long-term potential in this market over the next 5, 10, 20 years. Um, interestingly, I also met uh, Exodus and... One of our biggest fans of the pod is a lady called Isuka Ogawa. I hope I've got that right. She is Japan country manager for Exodus. And she's a she's a an unbelievable fan of this podcast, would you believe it? I mean, so big shout out to her. <laughs> and um thank you for welcoming me into their offices and um, you know, giving me some background on what's happening in Japan. So a lot of excitement, uh, a lot of companies trying to position. And now we're just waiting to see if the Japanese government can deliver what what investors are looking for in terms of a coherent strategy. And um, there was also a lot of talk about floating wind, where where the potential lies, and how Japan could become a major player in that. In your in your in your piece, you mentioned about uh, Mitsubishi and sort of you know that way in which obviously sort of you know swept the board pretty much in in that first round. And, and there was perhaps a sort of a suggestion that may not be an entirely healthy development. Is 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 that uh, some reason for concern? Yeah, so I think that's what's got a lot of the big developers, the big companies like uh, Equinor, Orstad, uh, BP, um, RWE, kind of questioning. They 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 all did a lot of groundwork prior to the auction, a lot of work with local stakeholders. Um, they invested a lot of time and probably money. And then the auction areas were given to Mitsubishi, which is a huge Japanese conglomerate, and um, who hadn't put in a lot of effort. And then all these companies were left, well, you know, empty-handed. And they're like, well, what does this mean? Where does this leave us? And, and this company is given a, a very low price, which a lot of people were shocked at. Uh, and will this create help create a sustainable offshore wind industry in Japan? And the consensus is no. So uh, the government has gone back to the drawing board since that auction, and the second round has now stalled while they revisit the regulations, pricing, etc., and and how they're going to move forward. Um, we're expecting the second round now, probably in twenty well in twenty twenty three, probably in the second half. Um, we're expecting the new rules and around the, the second auction to be released by the end of this year, although that could slip into next year. Um, and one thing which the developers and suppliers did mention was that the uncertainty doesn't help, and it's probably going to be a few rounds of this uncertainty because the, the next set of rules and regulations probably won't be quite right either, so it might take a couple of years for things to settle down. Um uh, talking to Exodus, they were like, well, you know, we have a lot of experience from the UK and the North Sea, and we would like to bring that over and, and help the government and help the industry develop. Uh, so there's there's some frustration there on on from from many players about the slowness and perhaps l- taking lessons from elsewhere and implementing them. Hamish, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, as Damon said, I think the UK has really sort of demonstrated a, an, an early lead in the in that sort of offshore uh, wind 
uh, area. Are, are there any, are there any particular lessons that you think that, uh, that 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 Japan should heed from the uh, from the UK experience? It's difficult to know what kind of stage uh, Japan's supply chain is. At. I mean, the big one, given the number of turbines that you see offshore Scotland, and given the very small proportion of the work that went into them that was carried out domestically, I'd say that has to be the uh, the kind of the headline of local content is a real must. Um, I would imagine, I can't see any reason why that wouldn't be, the demands on that would be any different in Japan as they are in Scotland, perhaps maybe more so here because there has been such a history of disappointment. But like David says, I do know, I've spoken to a lot of firms and um, Scottish firms who are waiting for big things from the Japanese offshore wind market and are expecting a lot of business for it. I think it was it was probably almost about two years ago, almost to the day that I think it was um, Scottish, one of the Scottish development trade bodies, I can't remember the specific um, name of it, held a specific uh, offshore winds um, in Japan webinar, kind of highlighting the opportunities there. And it was very well attended. I did a piece up for it on the supplement and I've covered a lot of BP, SSE renewables, all making plays over there. The kind of, the kind of scale of, of wind over there is pretty, is almost second to none, really in terms of, especially in terms of kind of the area around um, I would imagine a lot of it is going to be floating, though. Yeah, yeah, correct. Because the the shallow water, it's very shallow water close to the coast, and then it drops off. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, and that's going to fill up pretty quickly. I mean, the way that Japan are rattling through their leasing rounds is pretty impressive. Two or three years between rounds, and we've had Scott winds well, started last year. Results were at the beginning of January, and we've still no firm date on when another one will be. There is debate about whether it's actually needed because 25 gigawatts is a lot to get on with at the moment. But no, it's uh, it's good to uh, nice to see that Japan is kind of um, fulfilling on a lot of people's expectations for it that have been knocking around for the last few years. And just just a final uh, question, Damien. Obviously, uh, I, I love a bit of LNG. Do you, do you think that it's going to have an impact on uh, sort of Japan's future uh, LNG imports? I mean, obviously, there's changes afoot in in the LNG market but do you think that um LNG producers should be wary I think that the wind sector is a long way from being developed it's it, it you know at least 10 years from getting any you know having 10 gigawatts say so I don't think the LNG developers have anything to worry about or LNG suppliers just yet um I did pop into Jera's office and have a chat with them and you know, they, the message there was that the energy transition will happen in a gradual manner and, you know, they would rather see coal go first before LNG. Um, they're looking at ammonia, introducing ammonia into the power plants. So I think LNG will still play a role in Japan's energy mix and imports for another 20, 30 years, really, while they introduce um, perhaps ammonia, etc., and they try to cut out coal. But I don't think... I don't think we're anywhere near the the LNG players needing to worry, but uh, you know, offshore wind definitely represents an opportunity for Japan. But I think you know, it's ten, twenty years away from perhaps yeah, scaring off LNG supplies. Fantastic. Well, that seems like a good uh, place to leave it for now, and we'll be back after this short break to talk about South Africa. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content. 
free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed, and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. So just as uh, Damon's been uh, pursuing a, a path of uh, energy transition, challenging as that must be for a, a fossil fuel uh, fan, um, so too South Africa, obviously home to uh, a lot of uh, fossil fuel fans, not least the uh, the energy minister who has spoken recently in defence of, uh, of, of coal. Um, Sassel, the uh, large South African uh, petrochemical giant, has, is, is making steps to um, make good on its energy transition plans. Obviously, in, in South Africa, it's a, it's a very heated issue. There's a, there's a big question around, uh, around, around how one makes it practicable and fair. Um, and, and, and for a country that uh, relies something like 80% of its power generation coming from coal, and obviously uh, the coal mining and, and kind of coal heartlands playing a really uh, important uh, part in, in the country's industrial makeup and, and also the sort of the employment questions. Any question about uh, moving or changing is obviously a, 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 a contested one. But for Sassel, of course, it's also a necessity. Uh, clearly, there is uh, no way in which it can stay still. So it's got a number of plans around uh, producing, for instance, uh, green kerosene for, for sort of sustainable aviation fuels. And also this week, uh, it announced uh, quite an interesting deal with uh, ArcelorMittal, the, uh, the uh, metal company where they are going to work together on a sort of a green hydrogen plan and a carbon capture and utilization plan. Interestingly, that's, uh, there's, there's no mention of storage in that uh, CCU uh, acronym. Um, in, in fact, well, the plan is that uh, they're going to capture carbon emissions from uh, a, a metal plant owned by, by ArcelorMittal, obviously reducing the emissions from the, the production of, of those metals. And then Sassel plans to transport that uh, CO2 to its own facilities, uh, Sasselberg and, and possibly another place, uh, and, and, and use that, um, that CO2 in combination with uh, the green hydrogen to produce sustainable products. So I think it's quite an interesting idea, and I think it's, it's quite a, a, an area where uh, Sassel feels in some ways, I think, that uh, perversely, perhaps, that they're sort of on the hunt for sources of carbon dioxide. I mean, I think uh, South Africa has has clear renewable potential. It's got it's got wind, it's got solar, and and they've got the sort of the wherewithal to, to sort of press ahead with it. And particularly with the government's loosening of uh, local regulations, the uh, private industry can can take more of a sort of a leading position in meeting its own needs through renewable power. But sort of combining that with green hydrogen and with Deals where they capture CO2 and, 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 and use it for their own purposes is, I think, quite an interesting one. And I think it, it, it's possibly quite an interesting idea that can be repeated in other parts of the world. And I think it's, it's clear that, you know, Sassol has uh, a sort of an international uh, position. It's, it's got a, a major chemicals plant in, in the US. It's got uh, interests in Germany, for instance. And I think it's, it, it's an area that perhaps, you know, we could see some quite, uh, quite promising progress in terms of sort of international interest in, this, uh, in, in these new technologies. And I think it's, it's kind of a, a demonstration of this, this, this interest is that 
Germany uh, has, has has agreed to stump up some cash for its uh, Sassel's uh, green sustainable kerosene plan. Sassel's called it Kerosene, which every time I say it, totally puts my teeth on edge, and and I and I struggle to type it, let alone bring it up in conversation. So I'm going to try not to say it again in this episode. But I I, I think it's quite notable in that. Um, Sassel's made this made this sort of step with high level uh, German support. With the German Chancellor was in South Africa a few months ago and, and was, was was there at the launch of this project. And now Germany is sort of going ahead and and, and meeting that kind of political uh, obligation, that political commitment with, with with actual hard cash. So I think it's 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 a really positive step. And I think obviously. For airlines, it's it's essential that uh, you know sort of sustainable aviation fuel uh, be delivered as a sort of a first step to, uh, to, to to tackling that big question around around how they cut their carbon emissions. And I think Germany has also got a, a particular interest in it. Obviously, it feels hard to have any conversation these days without uh, reference to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the way that's uh, upended energy markets in Europe. But obviously, Germany has been on this path for a while, and I think that the, uh, the that that disruption to gas supplies has really helped, uh, you know, sort of change up thinking. So it feels like a significant step, but obviously there are a few uh, steps to go before we get to delivering these uh, these big projects. And and for South Africa specifically, could it be a boon for for people there if it becomes an export hub for for green hydrogen? And and as our re- resident LNG expert, can you? export hydrogen in much the same way as you can LNG in in these tankers? I mean, it's a there's a lot of kind of debate, I know, um, discussion about how best to do it, but it seems as a gas that that's perhaps the, the way forward. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think, I think uh, you know, so the, the, the first part, yes, I think there is a, there is a, um, I think there is a long-term benefit, isn't there, to sort of locking in decolonization and working out how to tackle these problems, particularly as, you know, parts of the world, including Europe, kind of start to think about Things like carbon border adjustment mechanisms, uh, which might penalise products that are delivered to the EU um, that 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 fail to uh, you know minimise emissions in in that sort of uh, supply sort of production chain. So I think the way that um, there, there there is movement on this now is I think really really important and useful. I think there's also a kind of a question there about. Um, you know, it's it's obviously good for for for, for Sassel to sort of try and kind of hold on to its its kind of petrochemicals edge, right? I mean, I think clearly a, a company that was its success was largely you know based on the the, the sort of the foundation of the sort of the Fisher Tropsch technology and and, that, and the sort of the GTL and sort of producing, uh, for instance, uh, high quality diesel from things like coal and gas is 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 I think. Uh, obviously, how Sassel sort of made its bones, and I think you know the fact that they're sort of you know trying to use this technology and update it to find new ways to deliver uh, low carbon uh, products is is, is clearly a, a good way for Sassel to kind of really kind of bake in the fact that it's kind of there to stay. In terms of uh, you know exporting hydrogen, yeah, it's a, it's a big question. I mean, I think you know we've we've sort of spoken before about. How probably I think you know there's a kind of a bit of a feeling that the most likely way in which to do it is is uh, to, to transform hydrogen into uh, ammonia, which is a relatively straightforward step. And then there's the uh, there's a, there's a fairly well developed uh, ammonia kind of uh, delivery system in the world. It's a kind of a fairly common chemical to move around. There are there are challenges with it. It is toxic, so it's not uh, for the faint-hearted, but it is kind of doable in a way that hydrogen probably isn't. 
That said, I mean, I think there is a kind of a question there about uh, the economics. I mean, you see, so you lose something like three quarters of the energy transforming, say, solar power into hydrogen. You lose a sort of a similar amount changing hydrogen into ammonia. And then you would lose more um, as you maybe try to turn that ammonia back into hydrogen on delivery to, uh, say, Wilhelmshaven in, in Germany. So I think there is there, there is a kind of a, a, a really challenging question there around around moving hydrogen. But I think possibly what's interesting around this sort of the Sasol play is that um, locking in local demand is possibly a, a more economical way to do it. Um, if they can, you know, decarbonize, say, ArcelorMittal's, uh, you know, local metal production, then that obviously makes that metal production more attractive in a kind of global market. If they can, uh, you know, produce uh, sustainable aviation fuel, then obviously that can go into into meeting local aviation demand, perhaps you know exporting sort of that kind of green kerosene. So I kind of feel that that that, that maybe that might be a more uh, practical and sort of commercially viable step, at least in the first instance. So I think there is there is clearly a kind of a big question there around around economics, but it feels like you know as we've seen with uh, with with floating wind. Um, you know, prices have come down, and I think there are you know sort of similar hopes for uh, for, for for hydrogen. I think that's probably uh, as far as I'm going to going to going to going to take this particular um, uh, issue for for this section. But we'll be back, uh, really bringing it home to reflect on some of the local political discord in the UK and its impact on the North Sea. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Hamish, it, it feels like uh, quite a week we've had in in, in politics. Um, I think we've lost the Chancellor and the Home Secretary in the last sort of seven days or so. Um, but I think uh, you know, and, and obviously that's uh, kind of high level kind of political changes. But there are some quite important local changes as well that we've seen. What's 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 been the impact on contractors? Yeah, I mean, Damon's a fossil fuel fan, you're an LNG fan, then I'm a nitty-gritty, tedious employment tax rule fan. Um, <laughs> but yeah, well, you might remember, it was probably only about two weeks ago that um, well, we were somewhat celebrating and the industry was certainly uh, jubilant that uh, <laughs> the off-contentious uh, off-payroll working rules, otherwise known as IR35, were going to be scrapped. Um, that was after long calls for them to have been so they were implemented um, in 2021 that was after a year delay due to covid uh, and they went through it then but the kind of crux of it is that the onus is now on employers uh, to decide whether contractors are working as contractors or whether the role they're carrying out is more closely aligned to that of regular employees <clears throat> if it's the latter they will have to pay more tax and it's kind of a way of 
the government's way to try and clamp down on disguised uh, employees paying less tax and, and closing that loophole. Now, obviously, like any policy, it comes with knock-on effects, and people were saying it was putting off contractors, they were moving elsewhere, it was putting off businesses from using contractors because the rules were overly complex and they faced hefty fines for getting it wrong. So when it was announced that they would be being repealed, everyone was pretty chipper about it. Now, two weeks later, that has been scrapped. Jeremy Hunt came in on Monday and as part of a whole wide range of um, U-turns announced that the IR35 would be maintaining. There were a couple of his, um, of quasi quarting his predecessors. Uh, policies that would be remaining, uh, they don't spring to mind and they really weren't the, uh, weren't the headlines on Monday. Um, so having had that... Uh, that's dangled in front of their face. Many contractors have now had it whipped away again, and it's obviously been met with a a large amount of. Well, some are particularly angry. Some are a bit more balanced and nuanced on the, on the matter. But um, yeah, a very short lived celebration. Now you might remember Dave Chaplin, who was a chief executive of tax compliance firm IR Thirty Five Shield. We talked about him. Uh, last time, he was the one that claimed that the, the move to repeal it could swing the next general election. He's now really doubled down on that and said that this repeal of the repeal is going to lose the Conservatives the next general election, which I, I would actually agree with him, but I don't I don't think it's particularly the, the implications of employment tax rules that are going to lose them the next general election, more everything else. <laughs> um, yeah, he was particularly angry. Kudos, who are, who are a um, kind of, I don't know how you'd quite describe them, kind of contracts or uh, accounting services. They were also um, miffed. They kind of described uh, Jeremy Hunt as being part of the anti-growth coalition, which is the current um, zing for politicians to throw around at each other. Nobody wants to be a part of that at the moment. Um, and there were some more, just kind of more nuanced ones calling for clarity, um, saying that actually because the rules that have been in place now for over a year are remaining in place then this isn't as big a blow to contractors as they'd initially thought it's kind of business as usual now i suppose but yeah it's been i've about three weeks of big u-turns of which for the north sea this is perhaps the biggest and um yeah three weeks is a a long time in oil and gas. It does. It it, it does feel uh, yes, like uh, a, a, a number of decisions taken, and it, it must be make it very hard to to, to sort of make plans. Right, I think. I mean, I, I guess you know, obviously, you know, on an individual level, it's 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 disruptive, and, and obviously, people sort of trying to work out how best to uh, make work benefit them. But I think, in terms of you know, sort of for the for the industry as whole, you know, sort of trying to obviously tackle various problems, and, and at a point when. Obviously, we've seen you know various amounts of sort of industrial action playing out in the North Sea and and, and sort of other places. It feels like uh, the IR thirty five sort of uh, double switcheroo must be an absolute nightmare. I think so, and I think the um, as well as current issues being faced by the labour market, of which there are many, um, skills shortages being the biggest one, and that's one that's tipped to continue for years to come unless things are done about it there's a big focus on ramping up north sea oil and gas work there's the ongoing energy transition there's so much work that's going on and not enough people to do it and and these ir35 tax rules were or appealing them would have been quite a good way for to make it easier for companies to plug gaps as and when they appear and this is so many companies companies have said that they're struggling to um struggling to fill They've got employment roles that they can't get people to uh, to to cover. That this any uh, 
measures that could be taken to help the labor market at this point, it seems would be a, a pretty astute move, but uh, sadly it's not to be. But um, maybe I think the fact that the government has at least acknowledged that IR35 rules are a problem, they've acknowledged that by the fact that they were going to repeal them and are now not, that's um, at least showing that they're aware of some of the problems. And I think people are perhaps a bit more hopeful now that there will be, although there's not going to be a complete rolling back of the rules, there might be tweaks here and there to make it a bit easier and just to make it simpler for companies and and perhaps less less damaging fines if they should get it wrong. And the, the problem is, a large part of it is that the, the online mechanism or tool that companies can use to determine whether workers are inside or outside of IR35 has been widely reported to not work, and that's the government's tool. So uh, sorting sorting that as a matter of urgency, I think, would be a, a perhaps a good start. I, I mean, obviously, the, the government, I suppose, is is, is trying to uh, repair that sort of vision of, of it as being uh, sort of fiscally irresponsible. To what extent does, does, does IR35... I mean, do you have any idea about uh, what the IR35 change will mean in terms of sort of government revenue? Do you have any numbers around around how that might benefit the government? Uh, I don't. I've seen, seen figures of millions and billions thrown around on in the comments of social media posts, which are famously not particularly reliable. Um, but, I mean, I suppose it doesn't make really any difference now at all because things are as they were. Um, but uh, but it, it's, it's very difficult to quantify whether the the impact on uh, tax receipts is uh, worth the disruption to the labor market I mean that's not a very easy thing to calculate um, and I think everyone would probably have depending on which side of the fence you were on a lot of people would probably have opinions on that I've seen there were people in our comments celebrating it I think they feel that that uh, contractors should be paying their their fair way if they are acting as employees rather than than bona fide contractors. On the whole, though, from the sector, it's been pretty pretty negative, and it obviously seems to be something that affects thousands. I mean, whenever we put up a story about IR thirty five, which, given the topic, they're quite dry and quite long, and I know because I write a lot of them, <laughs> they get thousands of views. When the IR thirty five tax receipts were. Uh, where tax laws were repealed three weeks ago. It was our best performing story, I think, for about a couple of months. And it was <laughs> so it's clearly something that means a lot to a lot of yeah. people. Um and, and given the nature, it's not just because it's uh exciting news. Yeah. I, I suppose it it, it, it does, does kind of play into I suppose, you know, there is there is obviously kind of that kind of question around individuals, isn't there? But there I think there is a kind of a it, it, it demonstrates sort of the challenges that the government's going through, right? And I think, obviously, we've also seen um, Jeremy Hunt um, take action to change the uh, the uh, energy cap, hasn't he? So I think I think now it's going to run out, what, in, in April? Yeah. Do, do, do you think that's going to have uh, much of an impact? Uh, difficult to call at this stage. Is it running out in April? I think it's going to be more means-tested from April, um, with the cost of which... Or, or determining whether people should get it or not are probably going to be pretty high. But you can kind of understand the move in that people are now being currently being subsidised to, to leave their swimming pool heating on all the time because because they can. So you would you would argue that means testing is perhaps not a bad move. Um, it's just a case of getting it right. And like a lot of big government policies and, and moves... Um, uh, Kind of civil service, it can get so lost in the civil service, and, and things become so bloated and complex, and and uh, end up becoming f just far bigger than they need to be. 
Um, I mean, I suppose they've got a bit of forward time now to plan for, for when April does come around. But um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. It's a quite, that was a really big reversal from what I think it was two years that they were government were guaranteeing energy um, prices or bills. And now we're what, a few months away now, six months away. So it'd be... I think when we get into the new year, those sorts of things will start to crystallise a bit more. Yeah, I mean, not to come off as, uh, as 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 a sort of a just stop oil protester climbing uh, the, uh, the the Dartford Bridge or throwing soup at uh, paintings, <laughs> but I do think that the government could maybe do more about uh, encouraging. Uh, energy efficiency uh, in in houses. I think obviously insulation feels like a like a like a like a sort of a long term no brainer. I think you know sort of support for more you know putting uh, solar panels on rooftops would be uh, would be a nice step. So I mean I think there are you know kind of uh, levers that the government can pull on there. But I think they did do that, did they? Was that not part of the spring statement? Um, I'm not sure about energy efficiency, but um, because I think that is one area that certainly needs um, incentivized. But I think for, for solar panels on homes, they were there were tax cuts for for those. But uh, but there's, that's a pretty small proportion of the population mm. that one has the capacity to, to put a... If you live in a block of flats, that's not much use. Yeah. And two has the disposable cash to be throwing at solar panels. Yeah. Damon, did you have something to say? You look uh, you're ready to jump in. No, I was, I was intently listening, actually, trying to hear Hamish's... Um uh with the with the volume but i was happy to see that you guys are both wearing jumpers and doing your bit for presumably <laughs> conserving energy keeping your heating bills down or in a, you know so um so it's Aberdeen, damon a jumper a jumper is just you don't get out of bed without a jumper on you okay. it's, uh, <laughs> it's part of the uniform i think yes um yeah i think that's the thing isn't it as we as we get further and further into winter you know, sort of struggling uh, for control of the thermostat is going to be uh, the, the, the the big question uh, in many houses. So I will keep uh, my fingers crossed for you guys. Less so for you, Damon. You're safely insulated from the uh, from the energy shocks. But um, but for uh, for uh, today, I think that's probably as far as we can go. Thank you, Damon. Thank you, Hamish. I've been Ed Reed, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.